I announced that I was going to present to you 12 weeks of studies on Bible doctrine. My guess is that you and many people wouldn't be very interested. Doctrine, that's a word that sounds pretty boring, like a boring and complicated thing. But actually, the word simply means a set of beliefs. And the truth is, whether each of us know it or not, we each do formulate some kind of doctrine about things like God's identity, our own identity, and God's attitude toward us. What we know and believe is the bedrock upon which every one of us builds our lives. Our doctrine impacts the decisions we make and the way we live every single day. One of the reasons the first 11 chapters of Genesis are critical to the biblical accounts is because they establish some of the most foundational doctrines or teachings of the Bible. Now, early in our Genesis, our, our beginning study, I mentioned one theory about when and why Moses penned Genesis. As you recall, God sent Moses to deliver the Israelites, the Hebrews, from 400 years of enslavement to the Egyptians and to bring them into the Promised Land. When God first called Moses, Moses had been tending sheep for 40 years in the wilderness of Midian, and he questioned God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What am I supposed to tell them? You see, the Israelites had lived among a pagan people for 400 years and had little knowledge of the God of their forefather, Abraham. They surely had questions. And if they were going to brave following Moses out of Egypt, they needed answers. The information contained in primeval history, the primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11, certainly would have told them who God is, who they were in relationship to him, and how he felt about them at a time when they desperately needed it. How desperate are you to know about God? to know more about your relationship with him, and to know the depths of his love for you. Oh, I am desperate to know the depths of his love for me. I guess that most of us are interested when life is difficult and when we're facing frightening possibilities, as Israel was. This week, a friend of mine passed away. And yes, I want desperately to know God and to know his love for me more than ever at this time. But the truth is, if my doctrine impacts my daily decisions, shouldn't I be eagerly seeking out the Bible's doctrines all the time? Who is God? Well, the four main events of Genesis 1 through 11, the creation, the fall, the flood, and Babel, give us answers to that question. <clears throat> Genesis 1 and 2 
as we learned, portray God as the creator of all things, as eternal, spirit, present, powerful, sovereign, and morally good. He's the one who blesses the supreme detail-loving landscape architect and designer, the inaugurator of marriage, the giver of meaningful work, and the friend of mankind. Yahweh, God's personal name, appears for the first time in Genesis 2 in the context of God's relationship with Adam. Genesis 1 and 2 reveals something about who we are, created with an exalted nature, the apex of God's creation. We alone are stamped with his image, and he made us to be in relationship with him. Then we discover that Genesis 3 to 5 tell us of the fall and portray God as the righteous but gracious judge, mankind's pursuer, the promise giver, the rule setter. He sealed the entrance to the garden, remember that? And he's also the God of the cherubim. Direct entrance into his presence can only be gained by passing through the holy judgment of his sword. These chapters also reveal something critical about us and about our relationship to God. We learn that sin is the root of all our problems, but God can offer a solution because he's sovereign. The genealogies of chapters four and five indicate that two lines of humanity emerged, those who followed the Lord and those who rejected him. To this day, Every person belongs to one of these two groups. Chapters 6 through 9 describe the flood. We learned a lot about that, and they teach us more about our Creator. We learned that He's serious about sin. It deeply grieves Him, and His own righteous character, His own righteous character obligates Him to judge it. He's the all-knowing reader of our hearts and minds and thus his judgments are completely fair and correct. Most importantly, these chapters reveal him as the faithful provider of the ark, the author of salvation. Then immediately following the flood, we also learn that he's the God of second chances, the covenant maker, and the source of our security. Mankind's complete depravity in the days leading up to the flood tell us that, left on our own, the world doesn't become a better place. Rather, it deteriorates morally with the passage of time. Finally, in chapter 11, we read of the Tower of Babel, and there we discovered that God had told mankind to spread out, but they refused. A quick return to the pre-flood pre-flood depraved condition was certain if mankind gathered in cities in joint defiance against him. By confusing their languages, God forced them to spread out, slowing the influence of evil. From the incident at Babel and the dispersion of the nations, we learned that God is capable of ensuring his ultimate, that his ultimate promises prevail. Ultimately, he is Lord of the nations. So we've covered these chapters 1 through 11, and in summary, we could say that they tell of mankind's moral failure. They certainly do, don't they? 
Left on our own, we cannot save ourselves. However, the chapters also tell us who God is. He's omnipotent and can save, and because he's good, he's promised to provide a savior. You see, God is bigger than our failures. God is bigger than our failures. Hallelujah. Aren't you thankful that he's bigger than your personal failures? He's bigger than our corporate failures, the failures of our local churches, our failures as a country, and our failures as human beings throughout history. Our moral failures, our political failures, our relational failures. God's plans and purposes cannot be overthrown, even by the rebellion of powers in the invisible world. He is bigger than all of these. How I praise him. Now, I find it's possible to know those things with my mind without transferring the information to my heart. It's not just the doctrine I know that impacts me. It's the doctrine I wholeheartedly believe. My actions and attitudes always reveal my true belief about who God is. And so will yours. I find personally that I'm, I'm exceptionally impacted by the Bible's teachings about God through worship, specifically in prayer. So when I pray, I usually try to begin with expressions of adoration for God's specific character qualities. Focusing on these things changes my thinking about the requests I'm going to make of him. For example, if I start by saying, oh God, I praise and adore you because you are sovereign and all-powerful and good, those acknowledgments change the way I view my problems. They seem less overwhelming, and I feel less fearful. I'm more interested, suddenly more interested, in God being exalted than my own discomfort. Instead of praying, take it away from me, by recognizing his sovereignty and goodness, I'm more able to ask him to sustain me and enable me to rejoice in them for his glory. Let me ask you, how often do you meditate and, on and praise God for his character? Not just the things he does for us, but who he is. Thanksgiving is extremely important, but praise is exclusively God-focused. If the Bible's teachings about God's character aren't impacting our daily lives, it's either because we don't know what the Bible teaches, or we don't yet fully believe it. What is God's name? Who is he? Will you consider incorporating you are such and such, these statements about God to praise him and focus on his character in your prayers? You are sovereign. You are just. You are the God of Abraham, the God of Noah. Well, often 
an examination of the early part of Genesis, particularly the accounts of creation and the flood, leads to a discussion about evidence from the sciences. The historical valid validity of the Bible's stories about primeval man and his history is, of course, one of major concern. And maybe you've wondered whether other documents exist that substantiate or conflict with what Genesis 1 through 11 tells us. The answer is yes. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered literature with origins that predate Moses' writings by several hundred years. Do they impact our thinking about the God of the Bible? If so, how? Until recent years, no one's doubted the Bible's claim that the region often called the Fertile Crescent is the birthplace of civilization. Despite disagreements today about the origination of humankind from a single stock in ancient Mesopotamia, the, fam the history of the Mesopotamian region is confirmed by archaeological evidence. Interestingly, no culture has shown evidence of writing earlier than the, that of the Mesopotamian people group called the Sumerians. Now, the Fertile Crescent, as the name suggests, is an arc-shaped, water-rich region. The less habitable Arabian desert underneath the arc creates that crescent shape. Understandably, the early civilization settled where water was readily available. The eastern arm of the Fertile Crescent is the area of ancient Mesopotamia. It lies between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, extending from the Persian Gulf south to north through the central region of modern Iraq. The western arm of the Fertile Crescent extends from the northern region of the Euphrates River westward to the Mediterranean coast and then southward along the coastline. This area is modern Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. Although doing so challenges the crescent shape a bit, the upper Nile region of Egypt to the southwest of modern Israel is often also included in discussions of the Fertile Crescent, since it's also fertile and its civilization is ancient. The Sumerians are the most ancient of the people groups known to occupy Mesopotamia. The influence of their laws, language, and ideas on succeeding people groups can't be overestimated. The Akkadians, a Semitic group, rose to power and occupied southern Mesopotamia along with the Sumerians near the end of the third millennium BC. The Amorites, yet another Semitic group, appeared in the area by the turn of the millennium. These people established Babylon, Ashur, and Nineveh as the centers of their power. The Babylonians in the south and the Assyrians in the north played a significant role in Old Testament history. Now, Syria-Palestine isn't known for having advanced ancient civilization, advanced as, as Mesopotamia and Egypt are. The significance of this region was, and continues to be, political, since it served as a land bridge in ancient times between Mesopotamia and Egypt and between Europe, Asia Minor, and Africa today. The Canaanites, Amorites, Arameans, and later the Sea People called Philistines are some of the early occupants of this region. 
The land which God called Abraham is the southern portion of this area. Then we can't leave out mentioning the Egyptians. Unlike Mesopotamia, the history of ancient Egypt isn't one of changing people groups. However, Egypt was without doubt a major power in this ancient region. In the 19th and 20th centuries, archaeologists began discovering ancient Mesopotamian and Egyptian literature that predates, as I mentioned, it predates Moses' writings of the Genesis record. Genesis 1 through 11 contains some interesting parallels to these documents, although the differences are significant. Some parallels and differences point to some of the conclusions about the God of the Bible and his self-revelation. First, let me tell you some of this interesting literature, tell you a little bit about some of it, and then we'll compare it to the biblical accounts and draw some conclusions. The first document I'll mention is known as the Sumerian King List. It's a genealogy that's believed to be semi-historical. The places named are real, and some of the kings named have left inscriptions proving they too existed. The document describes eight kings who supposedly ruled over five cities, get this, for a total of 241,000 years before the flood. Each of them ruled between 28,000 and 36,000 years. After this time, according to the list, the flood occurred. Following the flood, 23 kings are listed as ruling for a total period of 24,510 years, three months, and three and a half days. Hmm. Interestingly, we see a correspondence to the Genesis account. Both claim that a flood occurred, that people lived in the time before it, and that lifespans did shorten afterward. Additionally, the achievements of the kings are reminiscent of those of Cain's descendants described in Genesis 4. By comparison, the length of years given for the ancients in 5 through 11 are really quite moderate, aren't they? Well, another document is the Eridu Genesis. It's the Sumerian creation and flood story. Like the Bible, the document describes the creation of mankind, the institution of kingship, the founding of the first cities, and the great flood. The details of the account are very different, though. The first fragment begins with four gods creating the quote-unquote black-headed people, along with a place for animals to live. Next, kingship descends from heaven, and the first cities are formed. Eridu is named as the first city. Then after a missing section of the document, the flood occurs. King Ziudsura and many animals are on board a huge boat, which is rocked by floodwaters for seven days and nights. Then the sun god appears. The king makes a hole in the boat and prostrates himself before the sun god, offering him animal sacrifices. Then after yet another break in the text, the king and the animals disembark, more sacrifices are offered to the other gods, and these gods grant the king eternal life for having saved the animals and the seed of mankind. I think you'd agree that the differences with the Genesis account are as striking as the similarities. The epic 
Epic of Gilgamesh is a later ver version of the Sumerian flood story and the most famous of the ancient flood stories outside the Bible. It was probably composed just before Moses' time, but put into final form sometime after. It's highly likely that Gilgamesh was an actual historical ancient king, since he's also named in the Sumerian king list. The story is about King Gilgamesh's attempt to defy death. In the process, he meets Utnapushtim, who's the Noah of the story, who earned immortality by surviving a flood on an ark. Utnapushtim tells Gilgamesh that the gods determined to send the flood because the expanding human population made the uproar of mankind intolerable and sleep no longer possible by reason of, get this, the babble. In order to survive, Utnapushtim had built a square-shaped, seven-decked boat and loaded it with supplies, including all his gold. He took his entire extended family, the animals and all the vessels, uh, craftsmen, they were on board with him also. As in the Eridu Genesis, the flood lasted one week, flooding lasted one week, and then following the week, the boat lodged on a mountain. At the end of that second week, Utnapushtim released a dove, then a swallow, and then a raven. Finding the waters abated, the raven didn't return. Then Utnapushtim offered sacrifices to the gods. And, in, I quote, when the gods smelled the sweet savor, they gathered like flies over the sacrifice. Following arguments among the gods, one blessed Utnapushtim and his wife with eternal life. Then there's another, the Atrahasis epic. That's an old Babylonian classic that's recorded in the ancient Akkadian language. Atrahasis is the Babylonian equivalent of Utnapushtim and the Noah, Noah. The epic covers the history of the world from creation to the new world order after the flood. According to this story, when the lesser gods rebelled against the greater gods because of their workload, the gods mixed their spittle with clay and created seven human couples to do their work. <clears throat> the flood portion of the story bears many similarities to the Epic of Gilgamesh, but with several additional twists. These are the, the twists. A god, a helpful god, made a secret plan to preserve human life from a nasty god's decree to destroy it. That's one. Second, off, once off the ark, Atrahasis fed the gods, who had no animal sacrifices to eat during the flood, and thus were starving. Then even the gods were afraid during the flood. And fourth, in order to prevent further population overgrowth after the flood, the gods caused some women to be infertile. Excuse me. <coughs> now the last document I'm going to mention by name is the Babylonian Akkadian creation account known as Enuma Elish. The main point of this epic is to prove that the Babylonian god Marduk won the right to be the supreme deity, thus giving Babylon the right to reign over all the other city-states. Two gods, one named Tiamat, mixed to produce all the other gods. Fighting among the gods took place. In a drunken stupor, the gods made Marduk their king. 
Marduk killed the monstrous mother goddess, Tiamat, divided her corpse using half to form heaven and half to form earth, and then created human beings for the purpose of doing the god's work, as in the Atrahasis epic. You might be interested to know that in addition to the obvious link to Genesis by virtue of being a creation account, there's some historical evidence linking the ancient god Marduk with the Nimrod of Genesis 10, either as the god whose worship Nimrod founded or as a god Nimrod claimed to be. <coughs> still getting over that cold. Well, still other ancient extra-biblical stories record versions of creation, mankind's fallen state, the flood, and the confusion of languages in ways that are both similar and dissimilar to the biblical account. Like the flood, many include the themes of immortality, man's role, mankind's role in service to God or the gods, portrayal of the serpent as mankind's deceptive enemy, a common interest in chronologies, the occurrence of a flood with people living before and after it, and an acknowledgement of antediluvian longevity and shorter lifespans after the flood. However, there's great disparity in the details, as I'm sure you picked up, such as the order of events in creation, the duration of the flood, the size and the shape of the ark, and so on. And those differences aren't just in the details. Theologically, the Bible differs from other ancient accounts. Its teachings about the world and world events, mankind and God are vastly different. According to the epics, the gods created the world from pre-existing material, while the Bible says God created the world ex nihilo, from nothing. The ancient epics explain the flood as resulting from man's noise level, while the Bible says it resulted from man's complete depravity. Pagan religions deify nature, the sun, the moon, the stars, water, sky, etc., while the Bible says nature is just part of God's creation. The Bible also pre presents a very different view of mankind. In other ancient accounts, man's merely a slave of the gods with no personal dignity. In the biblical account, man is made in God's own image, the apex of creation and deeply loved. The Bible's clear that mankind's biggest problem is sin, while extra-biblical views portray it as less, a less insidious evil, such as fertility or the God's retribution. The extra-biblical accounts suggest a positive progression that things were not as good to begin with as they've become. The Bible tells us just the opposite. Things began perfectly, but man's sin resulted in progressive deterioration. Finally, the ancient document's view of God or the gods is certainly not the same as that of the Bible. The Babylonian gods were weak. They couldn't control the flood. They create man because they're tired of work. They're dependent on mankind for food, as given in the sacrifices. Some gods dominate others or are forgetful. The God of the Bible is all-powerful, all-knowing, and untiring. While the ancient gods are often drunk 
deceitful, scheming, fearful, immoral, squabbling among themselves. The God of the Bible is utterly holy, righteous, and sovereign. The gods in the Mesopotamian stories desire to suppress human beings, while the God of the Bible desires to bless human beings. The gods of the other accounts have often have male and female consorts or com competitors, but the God of the Bible, praise his name, stands alone. Well, these similarities and differences can lead us to some pretty important conclusions. First, the fact that ancient creation and flood stories do exist and exist independently of one another tells us that at one time, there was a general recognition of the world's origin by divine will and a general knowledge of the flood. Hmm. Second, those who read the ancient biblical documents, extra biblical documents, the ancient extra biblical documents for themselves can easily testify to the vast difference in tone when compared to the Bible. The Bible's account is straightforward, noble, and authoritative. While the tone of the extra biblical accounts is sometimes disjointed, often pretty base, and always mythological in nature. The theological differences offered by the biblical account emphasize the superiority of the God of the Bible. And third, the differences between the accounts, especially the Bible's unique theological perspective, indicate that the accounts couldn't have simply been borrowed from one another. In fact, some scholars believe that Moses didn't even know of their existence. The Bible is absolutely unique in its perspective among all ancient literature. In an age where such low view of the gods dominated, the Hebrews couldn't have arrived at such an exalted view of God on their own. Its entire worldview is radically different. The only reasonable conclusion is that the Genesis account was intended to correct the record about who God is, who we are, and how he feels about us. The God of the Bible is superior to all other gods. That is our second and final principle today, the God of the Bible is superior to all other gods. The biblical document doctrines of God's God have tremendous impact for our everyday lives. Have you recently considered that the God who's powerful enough to call all things into existence out of nothing by his spoken world, word is powerful enough to create spiritual life in the heart of that person whom we love, even though they seem totally dead to spiritual things. The God who's able to separate night from day is able to free us, to separate us from the sins that enslave us. The God who blessed man at the very dawn of human life, who created us in his own image, and made us to be in relationship with him, 
is concerned when life is difficult. Because God gave Adam and Eve instructions that pointed them toward the way of life, the instructions he's given us in the rest of his word are trustworthy, even when we can't imagine how following them will actually make our lives better. The God who promised a Messiah all the way back in Genesis 3 and sent Jesus in fulfillment of that promise will also fulfill every one of his good promises, even if circumstances tell us differently. The God who saw into the heart of Noah, one lone man in a thoroughly corrupt society, also understands each of us, even when no one else does. The God who grieved over the sinful condition of the sons of God and the daughters of men cries with us, when our own sons and daughters make bad choices. The God of the ark is capable of carrying us safely through any trial that we may face. And the God who interrupted the plans of those who opposed him at Babel still ensures his plans prevail, including his ultimate plans for your life and mine. Well, the Bible was written for people of all times and all places. It is the living word of the only living and true God. It tells us that he is supreme, that we are the apex of his creation and the objects of his affection.